0: Welcome to One Heart, One Mind, a podcast of the Nampa, Idaho South Stake, to inspire and give hope in our efforts to build Zion. And now your host, Kim Keller. Hello, welcome to the One Heart, One Mind Nampa podcast. My name is Kim Keller, and I'm excited today. We're joined by Andy Barman. Uh, This is a guy with a multitude of experiences. It was funny, Andy, and you and I are sitting across the table from each other, and about 10 years ago... We sat across the table from each other in a restaurant at a wedding reception, and that's how I first met Andy Barman. So that's I'm right. excited to, to hear uh, have people hear uh, the interesting things about your life. He has a lot of experiences. He spent a few years of his life in Venezuela, went on a mission to Argentina, and but now he's a practicing veterinarian. But if you've got a cat or a dog or a lizard, you can't do anything for him, can you?
1: I, I can, but I don't. I'm one of those... Uh people that is fortunate enough, it's like a car mechanic that likes Chevys and only works on Chevys, that's me. I, I just work on cattle.
0: So cows are your Chevys? That's right,
1: yeah. I, I When my dog needs something done, I take him to take her nutmeg to uh, a vet that specializes in that so she can get the best care, because I'm not it anymore.
0: <laughs> well, it's fascinating that we are talking to uh, a dairy vet but we're going to weave this, uh, your life experience, into what it means to have belief and faith and uh, experience the love of God. Are you good with that today?
1: I am, and I, I am a huge fan of the podcast, so it's super exciting for me to be here and see how everything works, and
0: I, I just don't want to mess it up. <laughs> you won't mess it up. This this studio is has been specially set up to be uh, non mess upable. so we're glad to have you here. <laughs> so... I want to talk a little bit today about how you have come to understand and feel God's love in the various uh, parts of your life. I I understand that you had lived in Venezuela for a few years. Is this before or after your mission time down there?
1: Uh, It was before. um, My dad, I grew up living in Michigan around the Detroit area. And when I was 10, they Ford, that's who my dad worked for, they transferred him to Venezuela, and our whole family uh, moved down there for about five years. And, um, we got to live down there and, uh, you know, the church is actually really strong down there and we went to a ward and, uh, was able to, they, they didn't have scouts, but I joined a scout troop at, at school. And I had a lot of the similar experiences that you'd have uh, here. You know, I went to an American school down there. Uh, uh, when I was talking with Rachel uh, before the this interview, you know, I mentioned how I had one of our favorite things to do in Scouts was to go to these lovely islands they have off the coast of uh, Venezuela. There's it's a national park, actually, and they have, I have no idea how many islands were on there, but the name of the park was uh, Chichi or Vichi National Park. and they, they had like 30 or 40 islands that would range, you know, about the size of maybe 40 to 50 feet diameter uh, to maybe half a mile across, and uh, you just charter a little boat and they take you out to one of these islands it was like a an hour hour and a half boat trip out you drive through these mangrove channels and see all these different kinds of birds and then you get out in the open sea and cut across the open sea to this island and boat would drop you off for the afternoon or a week depending on you know you just come back and pick you up whenever you told them and uh I told her that's how I got into rafting was, uh, I, I didn't know this, but at like 10 years old, 12 years old, I had hit the pinnacle of camping. You know, you, you, you don't realize it's never going to get better than this. <laughs> you think, hey, life is always going to be awesome like this. But, uh, you know, camping on a on a small island <clears throat> in the middle of the Caribbean uh, with palm trees and all that, it's just that that is, I highly recommend it to anybody listening. If you can have that kind of camping experience, uh, that is the paradise of camping. It sounds a
0: lot camp. like my when I go out to the Boy Scouts down to Celebration Park. Down there by yes, Sneakers, that's they exactly sound very it. similar. Yeah, in the parking lot there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. So. You worked for, your dad worked for Ford. One thing I remember distinctly about South America when I, I sort a mission in Argentina also was oh. there were Ford Falcons everywhere.
1: I love the Ford Falcon. That is right. Yeah. What a great car. Yeah. <laughs> I, one thing people don't know about when your dad works for Ford, uh, you grow up and that's all you buy is Fords. But yeah, they had Ford Falcons on my mission in Argentina uh, and... I thought they were a great car. They don't have them here. No,
0: they don't have them here. But it was everywhere down there. Well, so what led you to to becoming an uh, a veterinarian? I mean, what and, and what have you learned from that experience through the years?
1: That's kind of funny. I um, I went on a mission to Argentina. I was down there for two years, and when I left, I I thought, man, I should think about what I want to do while I'm down there. I had no plan for life, you know, and so I thought, oh, two years, that's plenty of time to figure this out. But anybody that served a mission knows that that's the last thing you think of. Mm-hmm. And so I found myself in this situation where I got home and I realized that I haven't thought about what I was gonna do after this uh, for two years, you know, and so i I got back to B y u. And I went to the counseling center whatever. They had a test where you take the test and it tells you how your personality meshes up with the personalities of people in different professions. And the one that I hit on, like, just it lit up and they they said, this is what you should do, was to be a pastor or uh, a lawyer, an attorney. And I'm like, well, we don't have pastors. Uh, in our church. So that's not an option. And I didn't want to be an attorney. So I remember reading some article about veterinarians and I I thought, you know, I love animals. And that sounds really interesting to me. I wonder if BYU has a pre-vet major that maybe I could take a course or two and see. And so I signed up for this uh, class. It was Animal Science 121. It was the first class on the prevet major and uh, it was taught through the animal science department so I, I remember going to that the first day and we started learning about the different breeds of beef cattle and the different husbandries involved with them from there we progressed into dairy cattle and then it was uh horses and goats and pigs and sheep and chickens and on and on I remember like about a month before the class ended, like thinking, when are we gonna get to the cats and dogs? <laughs> and uh, we never did, you know. I, I leaf through the scissors, I'm like, this is just about farm animals. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> I totally, you know, because <laughs> I did not grow up anywhere near a farm, cows or anything, but the, um, that class, the professor about a week or two into it, he asked if anybody needed a job And I did, so he took me down to the BYU employment office, and about an hour later, we were driving south on I-15 down to Spanish Fork, uh, to the BYU Dairy, which was about, I don't know what that is, like 35 miles away, more or less, but it's right there at the mouth of Spanish Fork Canyon, or was, it was the largest campus dairy of any university or college anywhere in, in the U.S., maybe even the world, they were milking about 430 cows, had that many replacements, young stocks. For people that don't know, the BYU Dairy was was famous, it was world famous, because they, they were like the second or third largest production per cow in the, in the world. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. They sold their genetics all over the country. And uh, I remember him taking me into the milk barn, which was had just been built. It was new and modern. This was like 1990, 1992. And um, he starts explaining to me how to milk these cows. And... Um, I'm pretty sure he was, at the time, I remember thinking, are we allowed to use these words? <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is the BYU dairy I, you know, okay. Anyway, uh, I found myself there. I milked cows there for two years.
0: Did you ever say this is utter nonsense? Because, <laughs> okay. uh, right. I can't even say
1: the words
0: that
1: he, <laughs> <laughs> he said. But anyway, um, <sighs> I found myself touching cows on the, I'm like, you want me to do what to her what? You know, I... <laughs> I had never touched a cow in my life. And so here I was pulling on these cows' teats and hooking the machines up to them. And I, I did that for two years. Uh, I milked with a uh, young lady. I don't know if I'm allowed to say her name, Sheree Bishop. Shout out if you're listening, Cherie. Uh, she was from Northern California, student at BYU. And we would carpool every Wednesday, uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then we had to work every other Sunday. Uh, and we would milk all 435 cows. By hand? Well, uh, the first thing you have to do to milk a cow is you, <laughs> you sanitize the teats with a spray, Yeah. and then uh, you tug on the teat. And when you're doing that, you're, you're expressing a little bit of milk out. And that initiates a reflex uh, that sends oxytocin uh, from her brain to the udder and that causes the milk to let down and you know then we wipe the sanitizer off with a towel and hook a machine to it and the machine does all the milking all
0: right all right good
1: so yeah and the machine whisks it away to the tank where it's refrigerated and a tanker took it to the BYU creamery where at the time you could go you still can go there. They still have the BYU creamer that you go get ice cream yeah. or, or milk. It was uh,
0: so from that day on. It was it was dairy cows or nothing for you.
1: It was I I had so much fun at that dairy. I couldn't I could not believe it. And that lab and that class was, it was like a kid in a toy store for me. Going around to the different units, uh, BYU had a sheep unit uh, there on University. I don't want to say twenty one hundred North. They had uh, like a bunch of of poultry, sheep. They had pigs in Spanish Fork. They had horses there in in Provo, too, and sheep and chickens, uh, a bunch of beef cattle out in Spanish Fork. So they they would take us to all these different units, and and then I worked at the dairy. Eventually, I got a job taking care of calves, which was one of the favorite things that I ever I, I did there, and then eventually I, I managed to talk the BYU campus veterinarian into hiring me, and um, she let me drive around with her in a truck, and we visited all these different farms that BYU owned and managed for their students uh, for the animal science program, and we wow. would do different surgeries and stuff.
0: So how does, this, how does your study of the science of life, how does that affect your belief in God and how, and, and, uh, and your experience with life?
1: Okay, well, that's, so I'm, I'm going to give away, if, if people haven't figured it out by now, if listening to me, um, a total... Nerd. <laughs> so, and I a, didn't think that for a second. Well, I'm about to give it away. Uh, I'm about to let the cat out of the bag. So I uh, remember to, to be a veterinarian, you have to take, I think it's three years of chemistry. It's the same for dentistry and doctors and all that. We, we, we go through the same gauntlet of classes. Uh, I remember being, I think it was in maybe biochemistry or cellular chemistry, or one of those, and I was looking at the a diagram of the cell, and the nucleus, and the DNA, and the Golgi apparatus, and uh, gosh, what's that little reticulated thing? I, I should have looked this up. I didn't know it was going to be a... Yeah. <laughs> to, anyway, I was looking at this diagram of the cell, and I was thinking this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. The complexity and the beauty of this just astounded me. And I like, you know, I've been taking classes like everybody where they talk about the, what is it? The primordial soup and lightning bolts, like hit a bunch of like chemicals in the ocean. And then, and then boom, you've got this. And I thought this is like a, like a tornado goes through like a a junkyard and when it's done you've got a fully assembled Ford Falcon <laughs> <laughs> with the motor running. You know? I'm like, that could never happen. This is like I'm looking at the handiwork of 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 God. And um and that was you know uh that was kind of like me Geeking out, and getting a testimony of of God and of Jesus uh, through the beauty of their creation that you, you would never see um, with the naked eye. You know, it's only thanks to microscopes and science and all of this that we've been able to piece these things together and understand these things. But it, nonetheless, it
0: it's uh, beautiful. That's awesome. What other things in nature have you? Have you seen our beautiful and remind you or make you think of God?
1: I, uh, so like I said earlier, camping on a beach was, was the pinnacle. Every other camping trip I've ever taken since then has been a letdown (laughs) until, uh, until recently, about like eight years ago, I, I bought a raft on Craigslist and I started, took some lessons on how to row the boat and and I, I wanted to do this rafting. One of the things those guys do is they'll float down the river, take all their camping gear out of the raft and set up. And, and it reminds me of those beaches. Uh, it's not on a Pacific or a Caribbean Island, but it's, it's as good, at least for me. It's, you're on a beach, it's a river. We love the salmon river. And I just, um, I love those, those that canyon, and um, I love it's it's Hell's Canyon too. Those are the two deepest canyons in North America. A lot of people don't know that about Idaho that uh, that they have the the two deepest canyons. It's a Hell's Canyon, and then the canyon next door to that is is the Salmon River Canyon, and uh, then the third is some other canyon in Arizona somewhere. I,
0: like yeah, the yeah. the Great Canyon. The Great the, Canyon. Yeah, the, <laughs> yeah whatever. <laughs>
1: uh, but um, I is I drive to work in the morning. Um, dairies start early, so it's it's super early in the morning. And in my commute, I know when a lot of people commute to work, they're like bumper to bumper. More more so now than ever, is uh, you know Idaho seems to be growing. And most of them are headed east towards Boise or, you know, into Nampa. But I'm always headed south and west. And usually I've got the road to myself. And, and I work outdoors. My, You know, I drive around to these different farms in my truck. And as I'm, I head to work in the morning, like yesterday morning, I think it was this beautiful pink supermoon is what they call it. I don't know. But... It was there hovering above the Owyhees that had been dusted by a little bit of snow. And above the moon were some clouds and there was just enough light out that, you know, it was lighting up the mountains, you could see them. Uh, it's kind of that, what they call it, the gloaming right before dawn. And I get those mornings to like reflect and, and we live in such a beautiful area. and. I get these personal, private moments where I, I'm just overcome with, with the beauty of the earth and the creation, and it, it's a wonderful time for me uh, as I drive to the dairy and I'm preparing to work to, to have. It's like a a, a spiritual moment to appreciate God's creation and to reflect on on spiritual things, you know, scriptures and things like that. It's
0: just it's kind of like a quiet time yeah. for me. You know, what what a what a testimony for us and to for for those who are driving the other way on our bumper to bumper, it, it's a, we need to remember that we we need to seek out those moments. I mean we were often taught find your find your, your mountain, right? Find right. your moment, your place of peace and and I like how you talked about the gratitude that you that you feel when you see the, the handiwork of God and it's a good reminder for all of us if anybody's feeling as they listen to this, I, I haven't had that for a while. I think it's a great reminder to go seek it out.
1: Get up early. Yeah. Get up early on a Saturday and drive south and west. <laughs> yeah. You'll, you won't regret it. It's uh, yeah there's there's been many times where I've seen it and I've thought I'll, I'll never see something like this again. Yeah. You know, I remember seeing a rainbow. I I'll never see this again. I'll never see a rainbow like this, you know, in the dawn, with the sun coming up like this, or in this instance, and just
0: being so grateful that I was alive and able to see it. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. Uh, now, this podcast focuses a lot on on hope, and uh, right. and it's, it's what we're trying to bring to people, hope. If, if there's anything in your life experience that could... Uh, that you could share with us that that you found in any part, any way? Um,
1: So in my line of work, I'm fortunate to work with the dairy cow uh, and, and, it's about, I would say, ninety-seven percent dairy cows. An and animal. aren't
0: they known as like the most intelligent of animal species? Yeah. You, you are
1: so <laughs> no. Actually, they are not. I, I love them, but they are they're they're the most intelligent of the cow species, but, but they're not an intelligent species. But they are uh, kind and gentle, and. I'm not talking about beef cows. Beef cows are a breed apart. They are not kind and gentle. They are mostly crazy and scared. (laughs) But dairy cattle, uh, through their close association with humans every day, every day, two to three times a day, a human has to lay hands on them and, and milk them. And so dairy cattle are used to us, and they're kind, and they're gentle, and they're curious. That would I would say is their most defining characteristic is their curiosity. If you go into a corral with them and they've never seen you within five minutes you'll have like an, a ring of cows just around you and they'll get about 10, 12 feet away from you and they'll just form a ring and they'll just sniff you and look at you and maybe one will get brave and creep out and creep right up to you and, and sniff you. I've had so I am a associate professor at Western University of Health Science, So I get these vet students that come through my clinic. Uh, you know, about twenty of them a year, and I've just had so many of them. Uh, as a cow will like walk up behind them and you know start licking them, or they just giggle. <laughs> you know they're just giggling and they beg me to like take a picture of the cow like. Licking them, and um, you know, they're they're my favorite animal. I can't remember what we were on. Well, <laughs> it's, it's like we were talking about hope, which is oh.
0: which is interesting that in your mind you just you're, you go right to the fascination of these uh, of these creatures that God's created for us.
1: So cows get sick from time to time, and um, I remember this. One time when I was just starting out, I've been in practice for a year, I was in Chino, California, and um, we were uh, working at the herd, and we had just finished our, our routine herd examination. We were in the back of the dairy, and we were walking back to the barn where we, you know, wash off, wash our ultrasounds off and get ready and load everything in the truck and drive away. And as we were were walking by this trash pile he had at the back, and there was a preemie calf on the pile, dead calf. You know, calves uh, usually are in uh, gestation. They're the same as humans, about nine months, actually. So it's... Just a huge coincidence, but this calf looked like it was seven months old. The hair on their bodies, it covers their bodies, was was barely long at all. You know, just it hadn't even had a chance to grow out. And um, I rem- and she looked instead of being about the size of a large German Shepherd, she was like about the size of I don't know uh, an Australian Shepherd, or you know, just a thirty-five pounds. Instead of 80 pounds to 100. And I was looking at her and I said, "Oh, that's sad. You know, she died and they put her back here on this compost pile. Where they'll bury her and whatever. And as I walked by, the calf looked up at me. And I said, Tommy, what's going on? Why is this calf, this live calf back? And he said, Doc, the... The the calf raisers wouldn't take her. This this particular farm contracted with a calf raiser to raise all their calves for them. And the calf raiser said, uh, "This she's just going to die, so we're not going to take her." So they didn't know what to do. They they thought she's going to die. They just put her out there to let her die. And I said, "You can't do that. You know, I'll take her." And uh, he said, "Okay, yeah, you can have her, doc." So I. Picked her up, and I took her home, and we put her in our laundry room. And I've got a picture of her. I mean, <laughs> she was the cutest little thing. She she looks like a puppy. She's like this size. She's so small. She's like this miniature cow. We would take her out on our front lawn and play with her. And um, she was deprived. She didn't get colostrum or enough of it, and she's a preemie. So she's really susceptible, just like the calf raisers. I should have listened but she got really sick. Uh, and we spent several nights up with her all night long. Uh, my wife and I, bless her heart, Kristen, and we, uh, we were trying to nurse her. I, gave, I had to give her a bunch of ID, IVs uh, because she was getting so dehydrated from the diarrhea and medicine, and uh, she just slowly started to fade. And uh, then one night, we lost her. And I was devastated, Um, but, and I thought to myself, this was so much work, and it was so hard to watch her die. Mm. I was a front row seat to a horrible, horrible experience. Um, and I was sad and depressed and all that, but, uh, hope, hope is trying again with the next calf and the next calf, no matter what, that I can't. All I can do is my best for every patient that is put in front of me. That's all I can do. I, I couldn't save that one. couldn't save our, our little kid. I had this like great dream that she would grow up and live in my backyard. I'd <laughs> buy a, a farm and milk her every day. It didn't happen. But to try and keep trying and always keep trying and never give up, that is hope. And that is the hope that I can bring with me every day to my work to the hope to even when I think they're not gonna make it or this is too hard or whatever to keep trying until,
0: until it's over. It's a great story. And and so applicable to so many things that we see in life, whether it's our children, our, our own work, our own uh, Goliaths we're trying to slay. I mean, it's it's just that hope that the next time, the next effort's gonna be able to make it worth it for us.
1: Yeah, that, that is right. Uh, that, that, that has helped me in, in my life and in, in, in a lot of things mm. to just keep trying.
0: Weirdly, just today I was talking to my son, and I said, now if you lift a calf every day, then by the time that cow grows up, you'll be lifting like a 2,000-pound cow. Is that
1: true? Yeah, I think that was like a famous story. <laughs> I think it was like Milo.
0: Of <laughs> it was some, some movie or TV show or Greek book. island. Yeah, that's like,
1: from, that's like an ancient story. It's like Greek mythology. Yeah, well, I told him that today. Is that
0: true? No. no. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, don't. i better go back and slow. it's no, Yeah. Not gonna happen. <laughs> yeah, that
1: won't happen. Yeah, he'll be. He'll probably tap out around. Uh,
0: well, if he can lift it, if he can lift an eighty-pound calf. Uh, yeah. When is when when is the end? When we when can we not lift it anymore?
1: Well, I don't know. They they get to, they put on about. They double their weight in two months, so he'll be of 160 in. 60 days
0: so yeah okay all right yeah. maybe not then now um i also heard that uh and this is just kind of interesting i think i've and i've heard some other people talk about it. you do bees you you keep bees what what's what's the deal with beekeeping and why do people do that why do people do that that's a
1: really good question um so when i was on my mission in argentina i um I had an investigator that was uh, in another area. I was, whatever. Anyway, um, we did a bunch of projects for him. Like, he needed his house painted inside and out. We ran out of stuff to do around his house. We asked him if he had anything else, and he said, I have some beehives at my uncle's winery. And so uh, that was, you know, volunteers to help with that dried up. But me and another missionary went out and helped him. And he he put like a bee veil on that you like kind of tie with a, a knot to try and keep the bees out. And he duct taped some work gloves around my little white shirt, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, we went out. He had 20 hives out there. He cracked them open. And he, he um, put a frame of bees in my hand. There's these bees like crawling across and it's like I'm holding them in my hands right in front of my face and there's bees flying everywhere. And I thought, this is the coolest thing ever. (laughs) I I think there might need to be something wrong with you uh, to think that, but that's what I thought. And if if that's what kind of person you are, then you're a beekeeper. And um, so I got home from my mission and that time the Boy Scouts of America had the beekeeping merit badge and my little brother was in scouts still and wanted to earn that and so we uh, found a bunch of guys in the ward that donated us a bunch of equipment we caught a couple of swarms and so that was 1991 I've been beekeeping ever since
0: oh man for the first time ever like two weeks ago my neighbor has this he has a honeycomb in his garage I didn't even know. I thought it was just like a cereal that you saw a commercial for on TV. I didn't really understand honeycomb and beeswax until he gave me a chunk of it to chew on the other day.
1: Can you believe that? I believe it, yeah. That's, that's my actually. favorite thing to do. In the So I no longer wear a veil. I just go out just like I'm now in a T-shirt. I'll put a baseball hat on because they get caught in your hair. Um, but I like to go out and open my hives up and scrape off a chunk of that wax and honey, and this is the best in like the middle of summer when that honey and wax is hot like 100 degrees and put that in your mouth and chew it there's there's
0: nothing better than that oh, man well you have taken us through a range of experiences and it's been totally fun as we uh, wrap this up and we've talked about nature we've talked about dairy cows we've talked about bees and is there any final thing you could share with us that uh, might help us uh, to see life in a little bit different way? I, I'd i like
1: to talk uh, about something that kind of came up uh, in my interview with, with Rachel before. I Like a lot of people, I have a, a brother that decided to leave the church uh, about 10 years ago, and it was very sad for me at first. And... Um, It's even more sad uh, when I talked to him, you know, a couple years later, I said, please tell me that you, are you going to a different Christian church? You know, is it just that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints wasn't a fit for you, but maybe the Baptist or Catholic or whatever is, is, is more along your style? He's like, no, I'm an atheist, man. I don't believe in God at all. And that made me so sad. You know, I had... A ton of friends in vet school that held similar beliefs. They they did not believe in God. And as I've reflected on it, I, I I, think that that is such a lonely and sad and depressing philosophy. I didn't mean to take it to this dark place, but I guess that's where we're going. Uh, but... um. If if you take God out of the equation and say there is no God, then many of the things that they believe in don't exist. Like, take love, for example. Okay, love, God is the source of love. He is like the Sun of love. Mm-hmm. And his love shines through the whole universe and that's what we feel. When I feel love for my wife, for my kids, I'm able to do that because of God and God's love. And my brother, my friends, they, they feel that love. But let's take, let's take a look at that belief where you say there is no God. Well, in that case, then that feeling that they're feeling is just... Their DNA tricking them. Because I believe that we are I'm, that we are the spiritual sons and daughters of God. And these bodies that we have are gifts from Him uh, to experience a mortal physical life. But if that's not your belief, then we're just a A chemical reaction, a giant test tube walking around. A very complex chemical reaction that is being run and managed by a set of instructions encoded on our DNA. But every thing that I do and every experience that I have is just that DNA and the past sum of my experiences, telling me to react, how that code on that DNA is—I don't believe that. I reject that. Um, and and therefore, according to to that that belief of them, the love that they feel for their wife, the love they feel for their kids, is just a trick that their DNA plays on them. It's like they're being like a giant puppet that's being run by this program. And it's just a trick to get their, their genetic material passed on to a new generation. That love he feels for his wife, it's just his DNA tricking him to put up with a, a female human. And the love that he feels for his children, that's not love. That's just his DNA tricking him not to eat his young <laughs> until they're of an adult age and can survive on their own. Um, If I asked my brother if he loved his wife, he would say, yes, he's desperately in love with her. Uh, He loves his children. To think that it's a trick is a terrible, terrible thing to contemplate. And for me, the knowledge that we are not a chemical reaction, that we are spiritual sons and daughters of God, Gives everything I do meaning. Instead of a life that is empty of all meaning, a life that that has no meaning at all and that the only point of life would be to experience pleasure and to get exert my will over as many people as I could, like Vladimir Putin or Hugo Chavez or that guy in Korea, Kim Jong il. Those are the real rock stars of this life if you believe that there's no God. But I, I reject that. I know there's a God. And I know that these feelings that I have come from God. And that every little thing I do has a meaning and beauty. And that that it matters. And that that my life has purpose. And the lives of everyone around us uh, has purpose. And that everyone that we see is is important and special. And that is what what I believe and that is what that experience has helped me crystallize in, in my head. And I hope that people can can feel that love and know what, the source of it. That it comes from Christ, from our Father in heaven.
0: That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for being with us today and sharing all your stories and your feelings and your thoughts and uh, and uh, I've I've been moved and touched and and I and I know others have today too. So thanks for coming.
1: You're welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been. So much fun to get to be a part of this after being after listening to so many podcasts. So thank
0: you. Well, I guess if anybody needs you professionally, they just need to buy a dairy cow. That's and then, right. And that's, and they, I'll give you their number. Or give me, yeah. They need a herd. <laughs> they need a herd of dairy cows. Maybe
1: three to five hundred. <laughs> Better yet, buy three thousand. <laughs>
0: thank you for coming today, Andy. All right. Thank you to Kim Keller, Lindy Bauer, Casey Madoff, Rachel Bauer, Katie Christensen, John Freeman, Don Ricker, Jesus Gomez, Rich Petrie, and DJ Holiday. Thank you for listening to One Heart, One Mind. We hope that you have felt inspiration and hope in moving towards Zion. As always, thank you, and may the Lord bless you.